In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We're in Job chapter uh, 15. We're going to 21. Job chapter 15. Boy, last week was a big chunk, wasn't it? Round two is shorter, just so that you can uh, feel good about that. We're in round two of, um, I'm talking about the dialogues, the debates between Job and his friends. This takes up a huge bulk of the book. Uh, Two chapters in the beginning deal with what happens to Job. His health and wealth are taken away because the Satan believes that he will not worship God without the blessings of God. Um, We see that then Job laments the day of his birth. And then we go on this long discussion, which we're in the middle of. And it takes us all the way to chapter 38, which is when God finally silences all the idiots. For lack of a kinder word. And um, says... It's my turn to speak now. And we're like, thank you, Lord. You can silence the idiots. So we're in the middle of that. So there's three rounds of debates. We're in round two. We're going to look at it. Each of the three friends speak once. Job replies to each one. That's how the format goes. So it's the second round of the debates. So now, before we get into it, um, perhaps you remember this as a kid, or you had kids, or this is just the fable. It never happened to you or your kids. But when they're scared of the dark... They tend to find monsters in every shadow, behind every sound, and, of course, under the bed. And then the parents have to come in, turn on the lights, look on, get down on their hands and knees, look under the bed. Nope, there's nothing. There's an old pizza crust, but there's no monster under here. Show the kids. See, it's fine. It's safe. There's no monster. There's not one in the closet either. And as kids can imagine monsters under the bed... Adults get equally creative, just in more sophisticated ways. We no longer believe that there are monsters under our bed. We believe that there, often we can believe that there are monsters under our Bibles. And we can create these images of a monster God. For example, just take some pretty um, radical examples. Uh, Indulgences, an example of a monster God that we found lurking in the world The indulgences are the, you can pay basically for less in the Catholic Church, you can pay for less time in purgatory. And in the Middle Ages, that got way out of hand and they began to abuse that, right? People began to just giving so much money to get out of purgatory. And of course, that was one of the triggers for the Protestant Reformation. Um, That's one example. God's so mad at you, you got to buy your way out of punishment. Um... Another one is that we can imagine God as the loather of humanity. Because I respect this former preacher so much, I'm actually not going to name him, but he he wrote this one sermon that is very famous. And this is a part where I just scratch my head and say, this does not match the rest of your writings, but this is what he says. You probably have heard this before. The God that holds you over the pit of hell. Much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. That's a monster lurking under your Bible, isn't it? If I've ever heard one. 
Now, yes, God doesn't like our sin, but boy, he is not the loather of humanity. He is the one who loves humankind to the point that he became flesh and blood himself. So you can see there's other sophisticated ways in which we can begin to see, oh no, there's a monster under my Bible. And that can actually hinder the way we live in the world. And when you're Job, you can begin to think, I'm suffering because God is a monster. Or we can look at other people and tell them that if they don't shape up or, or, or shave up or get their act together, then they will, back to the hippie era, right? That's what the Christians used to say to them, shave up, kids. Um, you will experience the monster side of God. Um, Job is a book about suffering, yes. But Job is also a book about theology. Because theology matters in moments like this. Why am I going through what I'm going through? Whose hand is this? And what is going on and why? Or how am I going to handle others in their misery? Theology teaches us how to deal with this. So Job's friends believe in a monster God. Do you remember this from last week? Here's the summation of their belief. It's Job 4, verse 7 through 9. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. They reap iniquity and trouble. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Eliathaz summarizes their worldview, their theology, their belief in God. This is bad theology. That God basically, if, if something bad's happening to you, it's because you've sinned and the monster God is getting you for it. It's as if they see that God is a monster prowling around seeking sinners to devour. Oh wait, that sounded a lot like Peter. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Totally different context. But brothers and sisters, it's the devil who's prowling around, not our God. But we need to ask before we go into this, because we may find some of the common pitfalls in our own selves. Is God your monster or is God your redeemer? So round two, chapter 15, chapter verse one, Eliaphaz begins second round of debates. Now to summarize real quick, the first round you might remember, um, each of the three friends ended with an altar call. Because in short, they saw Job as someone who just simply needed to confess his sins and then God would relent from the disaster he's bringing on Job. But Job insists over and over, this is not because of my sin. God is not punishing me for my sin. He is not hurting me for my sin. And so the friends are like, oh, you're that kind of sinner. Okay, fine. Repentance is not an option for you. So they they go into gear two here in round two, and they basically are now, each of the free three friends are going to end their speeches with God punishes the wicked and terrify Job with these visions of hell and judgment and torment. That's essentially what they're going to do. So here we go. Each of them are going to start with a rebuke. Job, you just got it all wrong. And then they're going to end with, this is what happens to the wicked, Job. Hint, hint. So Eliaphaz, here we go. Chapter 15, verse 1, it says, verse 2, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? He's talking to Job. Job, you say you're wise. Should you actually answer with nothing but air? 
Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, Job, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. How dare you, Job, say the things you're saying? Because you're proud, you're arrogant. That's verse 7. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? (laughs) Have you listened in the counsel of God? Well, Eliphaz hasn't either. Because we know that in the counsel of God and his heavenly beings, this, all that's happened is because the devil, uh, the, the Satan in Job, Satan comes before God and says, Hey, I'll bet that if you take away his health and wealth, he will curse you. Well, I mean, life has like, yep, there's something happening in the counsel of God. And it's not because Job sinned. It's because the Satan is testing Job. Uh, have you listened? Verse 9, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us older than your father. Are the comforters of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? In other words, he's saying, who do you think you are? You don't know anything compared to God. So how dare you talk this way? What is man? 14. That he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, much less one who is abominable and corrupt, and a man who drinks injustice like water. So God does not put trust in his holy ones. He may be alluding there to um, the rebellious angels called demons. And so, yeah, like, if even they can turn from God, what makes you think that you are in some privileged, special place? Well, now, here he goes. God punishes the wicked, round one. Verse 17. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen, I will declare. Let's get to verse 20. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of the darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad from bread for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle, because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty. He's implying that Job has stretched out his hand against God. Running stubbornly against God with thickly bossed shield. A a thickly bossed shield where you put layers upon layers upon the shield so it's thicker. It can quench more fiery arrows. Um, Bossed shield, verse 27. Because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat about his waist. In other words, he's eating the good life. Like he's rich. His wealth is coming from his wickedness. Um, And has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. The meaning there is probably that he lived in these great wealthy cities, but they're destined to be destroyed. They've become destroyed because that's the fate of the wicked. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots and by the breath of his mouth, he will not depart. By the breath of his mouth, he will depart. 
Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself. For emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of, the, of bribery. So Job has basically been evil. He's been using bribery. He's godless. And then 35, the con- they conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. That's you, Job. You are wicked. We're just not, we're not inviting you to repentance anymore. We're just saying you are this. You're choosing the path of the wicked. So be ready for the terror to come. The monster God is going to rip you apart. Well, <laughs> so nice. So Job responds with the famous line to his friends. So Job's going to rebuke his friends and then he's going to answer. 16 verse 1. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. It's empty rhetoric is what he's saying. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. But now in verse 6, he's going to start to say, God has hated me. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. Look at verse 9. He has torn me in his wrath. And hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Monster. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. And they have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. So he keeps on saying, God is basically, God's turned against me. He's hated me. Um, Look at verse 15. You get a good idea of what's going on too. Verse 15, he says, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Um, sewed sackcloth on my flesh. When you're in mourning in the old days, you would wear sackcloth, which is very scratchy. Just think of like a potato sack that you hop around in. Imagine wearing that. That's kind of the idea. And, and you're doing it because you're so miserable, you're so humble that you're not worthy of comfortable clothing. So it, it was just a way of mourning and even sometimes of penance, of repentance. Um, Job is saying that his sackcloth has become part of his skin. He's been wearing it for so long that it's starting to just become his flesh, is what he's saying. So God has hated him. And then in verse 18, he begins to wonder again, maybe there's an intercessor in heaven for me. O earth, cover not my blood and let, not, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. 
But Job, once again, falls into doubt and loss of hope in chapter 17. He says, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. They're provoking me endlessly. So now in verse 3, he turns his cry to God and says, Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? You're my only hope, God. You're my only defense, he's saying. So please, please be my security. Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, that's his friends, you've closed their hearts, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. So he's basically saying, God, protect me, let not my friends win. It would be unfair if you let my friends win. And by win, we mean that the words they're saying about me are true. Don't let these words they're saying be true. Come to my defense. Please let the intercessor, the witness from your heavenly courts, from your heavenly counsel, come and speak on my behalf and say, Job is suffering because the Satan wanted to test him, not because he's sinful. You friends, be quiet. Put a button in it, sock in it. I don't know, whatever. Leave my anointed one alone. That's what he wants. Verse 6 to the end of chapter 17 is a big, long, despairing tirade from Job. It's not really long, short, but it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's despair. He says in verse 6, He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. I'm fading away. And so that's his despair. It goes through the end of the chapter. Um, but now Bildad, so friend number two speaks and Bildad is, is real simple in verses one through four. He's going to rebuke Job just like Eliphaz did. And then the rest of the chapter, verse five to the end, he's going to terrify him with the images of the monster God judging the wicked. <laughs> Man, miserable comforters like Job just, he was a little nice to them. Miserable comforters is not harsh enough. So Bildad the Shuhai, 18 verse 2. How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger. What, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock be removed out of its place? Translation of verse 4 is basically saying, what? You want the entire universe to orbit around you? You're so selfish. Get perspective, Job. Of course, he's, he's in pain. He's suffering. You know what that's like. You want pity parties when you're feeling down. Yeah. And Bildad has absolutely no mercy for that. So now, <laughs> good to know, William. I'll make sure I launch a good party for you. Verse 5, now his images of God terrifying Job because of his wickedness. Verse 5, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. 
Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Whew, king of terrors. I could see that being the devil, yeah? The lord of the dead. In the tent, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, children, offspring, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Job. So now Job gets to respond again. And again, he rebukes them. He calls them monsters. So this is 19, verse 2. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. It's none of your business. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So if you're going to say this is happening, this is God's business, not yours. God's judging. You're not to judge me. So in verse 7, now he's going to say, I'm ignored by God himself. Behold, I cry out violence. My friends, like they're monsters, right? They're doing violence to me. I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He's feeling the wrath of God. This is what it feels like for him right now. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. And in verse 13, so God's turned against him now. All humanity has abandoned him. Verse 13, he has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I don't know if that's talking about morning breath or anything. It's probably more about like, he is so estranged from her. She, she doesn't even remember his smell, if you will. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. So when Job is near the bus stop, he's the one they're throwing mud and rocks at. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy, by the way, there's one of your English idioms that comes from scripture. (laughs) Have mercy on me, 
Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? And you could see him just stretching out his arms, scraped to the point of bleeding from the broken pottery in which he's, he's, you know, he's scraping the pus out from the boils. And he just, why are you not satisfied with what's happened? Why do you have to add torment to what I'm going through? So he's asking for his friends to have mercy on me. But, but, but. See, Job doesn't quite see at the moment, right? He's, he's buying into their bad theology that, yes, God's a monster. And I'm, I'm receiving all this from his hand. But wait a minute, careful readers. We've been reading through Job. Of course, we have the privilege of seeing what happened in the divine council up in heaven. Was it God's hand that was stretched out against Job? No, no, it wasn't. If you look at 1 verse 2, or 1 verse 12, actually. Um, 1 verse 12, um, it says this, the Lord said to the Satan, behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan, his wealth is in your hand. Go for it. But then in 2 verse 6, the second time that Satan comes before God, he says, um, yeah, if you let me destroy his health, then he'll curse you. So we see in 2 verse 6, the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, Job's, I'm adding this for understanding, Behold, Job's health is in your hand. Only spare his life. Job whines that the hand of God has touched me. Oh no, Job. No. The hand of the Satan has touched you. God's not the monster. God's not the one trying to rip your life into pieces. This is the work of the Satan, which means, remember, the adversary, the opposer, the enemy. He is the one working against you right now. And, of course, we don't see the Satan anymore. It's just the beginning and then he's gone. But he's actually at work behind the friends of Job. He's turning them into little monsters to work his villainous bad theology into Job's head and heart as they continue to torment him. But remember, and of course Job is going to later pray for these friends, what a saint he is, <laughs> because he realizes at the end that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not the friends who are the enemy. We wrestle against the principalities, the darkness, the thrones of the, the principalities in darkness. I don't remember how Paul puts it, but you know the passage all the spiritual powers are what we wrestle against. They like to sneak and weasel their way in through the people that we know. And as soon as we get mad at the people we know, ooh, how gleefully happy they are. Because they just wrecked the progress of your soul. <laughs> and they were undetected the whole time. That's what's happening. The Satan's touching Job. And he's pleading with his friends. But... In the midst of this crying for mercy, God hears and gives Job the sight of a prophet. And Job is considered a prophet, perhaps for this very passage right here. So 1923, the high, one of the high moments of Job's whole speeches, 1923 says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. <laughs> How ironic. Oh, that with a pen, with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives 
And at the last, he will stand upon the earth, or literally the dust. And after my flesh has been thus destroyed, after I die, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, my heart faints within me. Um, one commentator made this very helpful for me. He says, Job says, my heart faints within me because he's, he's actually uh, got, like, he's not just saying this hopefully, but like he's actually seeing a vision of what he's saying in a sense. And he's already, he's acting as if it's happening before him. His heart is fainting within him, in him the way people do when an angel of the Lord appears before them, right? Down on their face. And Job's like, my heart is fainting within me. And then one commentator helpfully put, we have the phrase, um, you have butterflies in your stomach, what Job's saying here is more like, I have elephants in my stomach. Like that, I thought that was great. That, like, that, that's what he's saying there with my heart faints within me. But now a warning to his friends. He's going to turn the table here. If you say, how, will we, uh, how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him. In other words, Job is at fault and we're going to find it out. If you keep saying that, then verse 29 says, Then be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the judgment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. In other words, there's a future day when bodies will be raised. They will stand before God and there will be the sentence executed. My friends, you think that judgment has to happen immediately, that I'm being eternally condemned for some sin that I'm not confessing. That's not how this works. There's a future day, Christian, in which the unjudged, good and bad, that has gone seemingly unnoticed, will be noticed before the very presence of God himself. And that's what we look forward to with good news at the return of Christ, is that there will be the great judgment, the rewarding of the good, and the putting in its proper place the bad. That's what we are hoping for and looking for. And so much seems to be unanswered right now, right? But that's coming. Okay, so then Zophar absolutely loses it with Job, as he did last time. Do you remember Zophar? This is chapter 20 now. Do you remember that Zophar was the one who had the worst words last week? He basically said to Job, you deserve worse. Like God's going easy on you. Uh, Job is just, or Zophar has just had it. This is actually the last time he speaks. He doesn't speak in round three. I'm just going to throw out a guess. Maybe he is just so done with Job. Like he just has nothing left to say. Zophar is a jerk. So in verse 2, he basically says, I've lost all my patience with you. So verse 2, therefore my thoughts answer, yeah, therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me and out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. So because of my haste within me, like I just have no patience for this Job. I just got to let all this out. And he lets out his final words. He just vomits on Job, his opinions about him. And guess what? Like the other two, the rest of the chapter is him spewing out the terrors of the monster God judging the wicked. (laughs) Verse four, do you not know this from of old since man was placed on earth that exalting that the exalting of the wicked is short And the joy of the godless, but for a moment. In other words, Job, you enjoyed all your wealth and riches because you're wicked. And yes, it's for a short season. You get to enjoy it. But judgment has come upon you at last. This is the end. This is your fate. This is who you'll be forevermore. 
Though his height mounts up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Um, then in um, verse 12, he starts to describe how their sin is going to destroy them themselves. Uh, verse 12, though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up. God casts them out of his belly. He's saying that your sin's going to turn on you. Like if you're hiding it within you, it's going to come out from within you. It's, it's going to find its way. And then in verse 17, excuse me, verse 23 He says that God is going to destroy all the wicked. So 20 verse 23, he concludes, To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. I don't want to be too graphic for you, but he's talking about the weapon going through Job's body and it sticking out on the other side. Uh, Just full on. It's not a mere flesh wound. It's more than that. 26. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed from him by God. Oh, man. So Job's had it. He's heard it. Like, he's had it from them. You're wicked. You're going to perish in a terrible way. You're basically living in hell now, and you're never going to get out of it. So Job in 21 ends the second round um, by basically saying, please listen to me. Verse 12, this is 21 verse 2. Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. Lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Now Job is going to say basically this. If you're right, if the wicked perish, then why do the wicked prosper? Why aren't the wicked punished right now? Look around. Why aren't they punished? And then he's going to conclude by saying, you guys are wrong. Open your eyes and you'll see that God does not always judge the wicked right away for their sin. It does not have to be what's happening to me. So in verse 7, he says, why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Why aren't they cut off right away? Verse 17. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? That their calamity comes upon them? That God distributes pains in his anger? That they are like straw before the wind? And like chaff that the storm carries away? You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them come and drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number 
of their months is cut off. Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk, and his marrow, the marrow of his bones, moist. In other words, Job's saying, look at these wicked people. They're full of vigor and youth and wealth. Like, you can't say that they're righteous. You can't say that I'm being punished simply because I'm wicked, because sometimes the wicked aren't punished. Um, another, uh, then in verse 27, in verse 27, this is where he says, you're wrong. Open your eyes. So behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me for you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? In other words, they're saying, oh, the wicked are all perished. But Job's like, open your eyes. 29. Have you not asked those who travel the roads and do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are swept to him. All mankind follows after him and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? It's almost like a lover. Why do you whisper sweet nothings in my ear? He's like, why do you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Round two is over. Um, let's go back to 19, because this is clearly the heart of what's going on here. And we need, to, we need to really not miss this. So chapter 19, verse 24. He had said that, oh, that an iron pen and lead were engraved in the rock forever. Job wants his words, his, his I am innocent I am not being punished because I'm a sinner. He wants these words to be recorded forever so that the one day when he is vindicated by God, all will see and say, ho, 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 Job's three friends were wrong after all. Job just wants a record so that he can be vindicated. But now the etching in the rock forever, it's almost as if Job is yearning for this because his friends have already etched their uh, sentence on him, on his tombstone. I got this from a commentator. I liked it. He said... This is what the friends have written on his tombstone. They say, he, they say, Here lies Job, who was a sinner with secret sins. He, he refused to confess. He has paid the penalty for his sins at last. And the justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. Amen. <laughs> but so Job is saying, Oh, that I had a chance to etch on my gravestone. That may be one way to look at it. But then he gets this vision of clarity and God reveals to Job that it is not he, it's not God who's the monster, it's his friends who are the monsters. God is a redeemer. And so that's where Job bursts out. For I know, this is 1925, for I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, Yet in my flesh I shall see God. That implies that he's coming back from the dead at some point. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. There are elephants in my stomach. Redeemer. It means vindicator. It means champion. I know that my champion will ride out for me. I know that my vindicator will answer that I'm in the right. Um, in Deuteronomy, we see uh, Deuteronomy 19, we see that the Redeemer 
in, in the Israelite culture was someone who went and took care of the person that murdered you. So if you were murdered and died, you had someone who was your redeemer who would bring justice for you. That's one way redeemers used in the Bible. Another is if you went into debt and had to pay off your debts by selling off your inheritance in the promised land, then um, your redeemer was a relative who would buy the land from you so that if you ever got back on your feet, you could get the land back from the relative. That's another use of redeemer. You know, the book of Ruth, um, Boaz is called the redeemer because um, Ruth and Naomi uh, are basically... They have no social security. They're on the streets. Uh, Boaz decides to marry Ruth, thus bringing in Naomi also and providing for them. Um, So Boaz becomes the redeemer of these ladies. Uh, That's the idea of a redeemer. And Job's saying, I know, I know that my redeemer, my vindicator, my champion lives. And he stands. He will stand on the earth. Or the reason why dust seems um, like an important thing to point out that it could also read dust as that, um, oh, it does read dust. But the translators are, are guessing he means earth. Um, but is that dust could also refer to your death, right? Your dust and to dust you shall return. So that what the Redeemer is doing is not just standing on the planet earth. He's standing on the grave of Job. And he shall stand on the dust. Therefore, he's declaring the Redeemer comes to be a testifier, a witness of the one who's died. This man died in the right. He did not die in condemnation. That's what the Redeemer is coming to do. And then he says, I will see him, which means if Job can see the Redeemer, it means he's been vindicated. It means he's been declared right so that he doesn't have to be pushed away from the presence of the Redeemer, but he can be brought into the divine heavenly council. That's what he's saying. Christ is our redeemer. But I I never noticed really the similarities here, how Christ is like Job and how his friends, and I don't mean his disciples necessarily, I mean his nation, the Jews, received him not. John 1.12, he came into the world. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Um, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says to all the people, This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When Jesus was on the cross, that was the world's opinion about him. Oh, no, no, no. You're dangerous. You, you don't, you, you're, you're not doing God. You're not doing the God thing the way we do it. So we're going to crucify you. And that's our declaration about who you are. This is what you are to us. Um, But then God comes and raises him from the dead. God the Father raises God the Son from the dead. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because that's God's declaration. The world, like the friends on Job, the world got its say on Christ. He's a crucified criminal, not worthy of any respect or even a decent burial. But then God is the redeemer. The father is the redeemer who stands on the dust, on the, on the dust of Christ's grave and says, you're all wrong. He is right. And this is who he is. He's not a crucified criminal. He is my son and he's the savior of the world. God raises him. And that's the declaration to all the friends that did not want him, that pushed him out, that he is in the right. God is not the monster, is what we find out. We are the monster. 
because we put him on the cross. And by willingly receiving the suffering and the pain from the so-called friends, his creation, he has exposed to us the hatred and the evil and the darkness that's in our own hearts because we unleashed monstrous terrors upon the son of God when we were given the chance. So God is not the monster. We're the monster. We killed the son of God. The monster God in our, the monster God lurking under our Bibles are bad theology. It's our bad theology. Job's theology was right. His friends was bad. We said this last week. You jot it down. Chapter 42, verse 7. God basically says that at the end. He says, what they spoke of me was wrong. What Job has spoken of me is right. His theology was right. But don't hear this as like, I want you all to become little like seminary students and get your theology right. That's, that's missing the point. Job's theology is not good because he's smarter than his friends. His theology isn't good because he's more of a scholar than his friends. Nor is he good at theology because he's special or because he belongs to Calvary Chapel or because he's a Protestant, or where, go where you want. These are not the reasons his theology is good. Job's theology is good because God is known personally by Job. Job knows God personally because Job prays truly. We're making assumptions about Job's prayer life, but we know that he was interceding for his sons. The opening chapter told us that he often offers sacrifices for his sons, praying for them. And when we read his words, we see that here's a man who prays honestly with God. He just lets it out. But also because Evagrius, the solitary, um, fourth century monk, obviously the solitary, Evagrius, the solitary, back in the fourth century said this, I think this is perfect, this perfectly sums up what a true theologian is. A theologian is not a pastor who's got all the answers, memorizes the creeds, and can debate people. That's just a smart person. A theologian is this, Evagrius, the solitary says, if you are a theologian, you will pray truly. And if you pray truly, you are a theologian. Early Christians called theologians those who knew God personally. Not the smart people who spewed out these things that we don't understand but grasp. Like, oh, I understand it's true, but I don't know what he's saying. That's not a theologian. A theologian's one who knows God. He, tra- he prays truly. Good theologians know God himself, not just know things about God and it's so easy, friends, to start talking about the scriptures, to start talking about Christianity, start talking about God, rather than actually knowing the scriptures and knowing God and walking the Christian faith. But that's what a good theologian does. To know God truly is to pray truly. This is where it starts. And it is absolutely and abundantly evident that Job's friends do not pray. They do not know God in this way. They know God in the head, but there is nothing else that they know about God. You cannot be a merciless Christian and be a Christian who prays truly. It's impossible. Because prayer is the opening of ourselves before the presence of God and allowing God to get inside of us 
Prayer is simply that. It's putting ourselves in an open place for God to enter into us. So you talk about how you do that and all those things, but honestly, just get there. Get before God and open your soul before him because he gets inside us. That's why the church fathers, like Evagrius the the solitary, all those early Christians, they called prayer the deifying virtue. In other words, this was the one act the Christian can do that will most make him like God. Not Bible study. Not knowing the right creeds and rejecting the wrong ones. Or having the right systematic theology. Systematic theology, by the way, is what Job's friends are spewing out. They have a system, and it's closed. And Job, you fall into the category of sinner and being judged. And there's no mercy in that. So if God, for us, if God is a monster under our Bible, then brothers and sisters, it's time to turn on the light, and it's time to get on our knees and see the God who's really there. He's not a monster. He's a redeemer. And he's our champion. He's our warrior who fights on our behalf, even to the cross. All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done.